Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I am joined, as always, by fellow co-host Joe Wolfon. What's up, Cash? Not much. We have gathered here on this Friday to dive deep into the eight-player second-round pick trade between the Houston... No, I'm kidding. We do not give a rat's ass about that most inconsequential trade. You cannot get a more inconsequential inconsequential trade while also involving eight NBA players. I mean, I guess you could also... I don't even think... you You can debate whether there's eight NBA players in that deal, unfortunately, but... I don't even think Sam Presti cares about that deal. I think he is honestly, I, I feel like he was just bored, yeah. needed something to do. He's like, ah, let's let's shave off a million dollars against our yeah. luxury tax bill. Why not? Everyone's talking about how they created these two player, like traded player exceptions, oh, yeah, gonna- as if they're going to use those. Like, come on. No. Um, he was bored. Presti was bored. Yeah. Needed something to do. No, I saw a lot of people praising even just like, you know, the maneuvering to save more luxury tax. It's like, yo, listen. If if the Thunder were a competitive team and maybe them saving some luxury tax money now meant like, oh, you know, this could open up some room for them to do something later and add to the team, then I'd be impressed. But it's like, you're not competing for anything of significance now. You haven't for a couple of years. You're in this crazy full-on tank. Obviously, it's going to be aided again this year by the unfortunate injury to Chet Holmgren and stuff. But I'm not giving you credit for shave like finding a creative way to shave your team's luxury tax bill while you're like gunning for a third straight what equivalent of like a 60 loss season like that you're not getting brownie points for me for that no i i think the the one way you can see it kind of working out in the long term is they use those player exceptions to absorb a contract that another team doesn't want and they get you know, another second round pick or two out of it, which is probably the long-term vision as yes. Sam Presti sees it. So I guess if or when that happens, I'll tip my cap in like the the most inconspicuous way possible yeah. where I'm just maybe grazing the brim <laughs> because that's how little I care about this. Uh, let's, let's move on to stuff that we actually want to talk about. Yeah. All right. Wolfon, you wrote a six-part, eight-player Oh, eight players, but more interesting than the trade that happened. A six-part, eight-player series about, can I call them swing players? The most interesting players uh, in the coming season? I think you can call them swing players. Sure, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, when we've done that exercise in the past, that's sort of how we designated them. And I wasn't thinking about them so much in those terms this time around. Uh, You know, like James Wiseman was one of them. And I don't really see him as a big swing player this season, but I still find him super interesting. Uh, but some of them for sure are. And I think the way that I thought about it in general, when I'm thinking about the players that I'm most interested in, was like, obviously, there's an element of uncertainty with them that is driving that interest because there's a question of what they're going to be, what they're going to do, what they're going to look like, how frequently they're going to be able to stay on the floor in some cases. But big question marks in almost all of those cases. And then the stakes and like what those those questions or what that uncertainty means and what, what it could amount to uh, depending on, you know, sort of which side of the ledger their performance falls on. So that was how I thought of it. And I I came up with those eight players and, you know, to me, those are the eight that I am sort of most curious about and most interested to watch this season for one uh, reason or another. I caught up on the, the six part series all this morning and I can uh, definitely say for our audience, go check out those pieces. I think they're, 
uh, very digestible reads, and they will prepare you well for the coming season when it comes to those players. James Wiseman, by the way, the first preseason game uh, just happened. It was Warriors-Wizards. Wiseman, I think, had 20 and 9. I didn't get a chance to watch yet. Yeah, I, I, was not, I, I did not wake up at 6 a.m. to watch yeah. that game, but I did. No, I, did I woke up at 6 a.m. to road to read Joe Wolf on six-part series. <laughs> Um, I just, yeah, so, so I saw the box score from that game. First of all, the Warriors starting lineup shot six for 34 from the Dude, field. Steph, Steph shot one of seven, I think. Yeah, I think Wiggins, or Poole was one for 10. Wiggins was one for eight, I think. Uh, starting lineup shot six for 34, and they won. So I guess to the extent that you can take anything away from a preseason game, that's like an encouraging sign for the Warriors. And how Wiseman played is an encouraging sign. And again, from just, like, I watched the highlights, so you miss the sort of possession to possession minutia, you know, like his defensive positioning guarding the pick and roll, like the, the plays that would not show up in a highlight reel, which is like the real meat of, of a game from a player perspective. I can't speak to that, but in terms of the possessions that he finished, I I thought it was pretty impressive, man. Like the, I think all all of the things that you want to see from him, like it, it's going to be pretty stripped down and simplified in terms of his role and what they want him to do. And I think from what I saw, as far as just like actually setting solid screens, rolling hard, got a couple deep seals in the post. They ran some high, low stuff with him and Draymond that I thought was pretty interesting. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you want to start there, but I mean, we, we might as look, I wasn't planning to start with Wiseman, um, but we might as well, since we're getting into it a bit here and then we'll get to all of the starrier names that you wrote about um, after this. James Wiseman, you remember, I think, when when he was first drafted, a lot of belief in his ability and his NBA future. And look, have the last couple of years dissuaded some of that? Sure. But I still have a lot of hope for this guy because I see the same things I saw a couple of years ago. And maybe it's just me clinging to what I saw when he was, you know, just a prospect. Although I think you would argue he's still kind of a prospect, but like seven foot six wingspan, nine foot four standing reach, the catch radius that we've been talking about for a couple years, explosive off the ground. All those tools are there. I, I list all those tools. He yet hasn't you really made an impact in the NBA yet. Well, and as I, I, I argue that he has, but in the wrong direction. Wrong, right, exactly, a negative impact. Yeah. But when I list all those tools, and as someone that did write about him a little more extensively recently, I would say to you, okay, so Seven foot six wingspan, nine foot four standing reach, explosive leaper. One of the honestly biggest catch radiuses you can imagine. So Joe Wolfon, what's the but? Dot dot dot. The but is like, look, we we've seen a lot of guys come through the NBA mm-hmm. with measurables like that, yeah. with elite physical tools, and often they don't amount to anything. They don't amount to anything because the soft skills don't develop, and. I even mentioned this in the piece. It's like, okay, he has this great catch radius, but what is that worth if you can't catch the basketball? Like that was that was a <laughs> yeah, huge I, I, problem I like, for yeah. him in his rookie yeah. season. You know, like yeah. his hands were really bad in terms of like corralling passes, but also in terms of corralling rebounds. And so that's something I'm going to be watching for. Like just simple stuff like that, like stuff that you would think would be easy to iron out, but maybe like I don't know. What if the the coordination just isn't there? You know, like that's we don't think of that as being like one of those hard tools, like the physical tools, but like that is a really important well, of component course. of basketball is just being coordinated, having those soft hands. And maybe that's something you can improve and maybe it's something you, you can't, but I think, you know, to, to, to go back to what I was talking about, where like the stuff that doesn't show up in a highlight reel that like, if I really wanted to 
you know, go back and watch that entire game, I would be able to tell you more about. But certainly having watched his rookie season and having gone back and revisited some of that footage in order to write that piece, it's like, that is all of the stuff that you need to see him improve. Like, I'm not going to overreact to a 20 point preseason game where he dunked a lot of basketballs and like flashed, you know, a little bit more of a refined offensive game. Because what I really want to see from him is that pick and roll positioning, boxing guys out, like demonstrating a feel for the game that I don't think he has shown to this point in his career. And I think it's not like he has to be a star for the Warriors anytime soon for them to continue to contend. But at some point in time, like they are going to transition Mm -hmm. from this era and this core to one that revolves around, you know, Jordan Poole and Moses Moody and Kaminga and Wiseman. Like Wiseman to me still is an important component of that. And, you know, look, the Warriors, you can tell me what you think. Like last year, there was all this talk or these questions about whether they should move him for some kind of veteran help. And I can't remember, was it Bob Myers or was it Joe Lacob who was kind of getting getting out in front of it and being like, no, we're not trading him. Like we There was the whole yeah, I can't I, I agree that I don't remember which of the two it was, yeah. but they made the that whole That was the company line. And they made the whole point about how like they were gonna com- compete in the short term while keeping I think they kept referring to it as like the bridge to the future. Like they were gonna basically straddle you know, we talk about it all the time with teams. Can you compete in the short term while straddling that line of like also building for the future? The Warriors remain steadfast that they would. Now to their credit, they yeah they won the championship without moving any of those guys. But in terms of the like bridge to the future stuff, like whether those guys can actually be the foundation of another contending team years from now, that part remains to be seen. I'm not going to take anything away from the fact they won the title, but th- that doesn't necessarily mean they were right about the young guys because they could move Wiseman or coming or like some of them and whatever and get even better right now and up their chances of winning more championships right now in the next couple of years. But if right. they don't do that, and then the young guys become the foundation of a 38-win team, like, I'm not going to be like, well, they were right because they won it in 2022. Yeah, and I mean, that is sort of the big question is like, how good, how sturdy is that bridge? How good is the next iteration of the team going to be? And I think, you know, so part of what's, what's it's not gnawing at me, but I just wonder... You know, to what extent do they really believe in Wiseman and they were just rejecting overtures for him last season because, no, this guy's an important part of our future? And to what extent was it they were maybe quietly putting some feelers out there, realizing that he didn't have a ton of trade value around the league? And so from their perspective, it was like, you know what? We are better off just holding on to him as a lottery ticket than cashing it in for something that's not even going to help us that much in yeah. the present day, especially when you know, obviously they were vindicated. They did go on to win the championship. So they didn't need the present day upgrade that some thought they might. But, you know, I think in terms of trying to thread that needle, building along parallel tracks, it's really interesting that you would have thought Wiseman was like the biggest plank of that bridge to the future. At one point in time, he was the number two pick, like the 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 lost season that they had when Steph missed basically the entire year, Clay missed the entire year, Draymond, you know, took his foot off the gas, to put it mildly, yeah. and they won 15 Draymond, games. Draymond basically saved a year of his career that season. Yeah, and you're thinking like, okay, what they get out of that 
is what's going to help sustain the dynasty and keep the window open. And they literally got zero out of that number two pick en route to a championship. Instead, the bridge winds up being constructed out of, you know, Jordan Poole, 20 mm-hmm. or 29th overall pick. Um, and then, you know, Wiggins and Kaminga, which those are the two guys essentially that they got in the trade for D'Angelo Russell, who, you know, I, I wasn't a fan really of them going out and signing him to that contract initially, but holy hell, did they turn that into a huge win yep. for the organization? It's like all these these more sort of marginal moves, those are the ones that that now look like they're going to help sustain this Warriors run. And Wiseman is this big fat question mark, and we don't really know how or if he's going to factor into it. So, you know, that's fascinating to me. And then it's like, if he does show, you know, a lot of improvement this year, is he then a viable trade chip or is he a viable part of the future? You know, and how do they see that? Uh, that's kind of, I think one way or another, like his development is going to be really important for them in the big picture. What is sort of complicating that, I guess, is like Kavon Looney broke out last year. He was a yep. huge part of their championship run and they re-signed him to a three-year deal, like a really team-friendly deal. Yep. Presumably he's going to start the season as their starting center. You know, what is Wiseman's path to big playing time? You know, and ultimately I, I think it's going to be a, a steady progression, but I, I don't like, I don't, I don't think there's think, any that Looney's going to be better than him this season, right? right? What I was going to say is, given the way the Warriors are constructed and what they get from elsewhere on the roster, obviously with the stars there, I don't think James Wiseman will be able to do the little things and like the fundamental things half as well as Kavon Looney at least this season to be able to supplant him as the starting center. You know, I think Wiseman could have some moments, and I think he can have some jaw dropping plays, and I think he, he, there's a potential he could be you know better than people think he could be this year, and he can help this team contend again. I'm not disputing that, but I think it will be off the bench because, like I said, I I think the things that you would need the you know a, a starting center to do right now on this Warriors team in like almost more of a stabilizing force. I don't think Wiseman's like feel for the game is there yet. Whereas Kavon Looney is like the perfect big man in that regard. Yeah. But also I'm like thinking about last year's playoff run or it wasn't last year, the, the, the playoff run in the spring yeah. a few months ago. And you know, where, where were the areas that the Warriors struggled? Like what kind of teams or what kind of players gave them problems? And I think in a lot of cases, it was these really big athletic centers or big men like Jaron Jackson gave them problems man Rob Williams gave them problems and I think for as solid as Kevon Looney is as gritty as good a rebounder as smart a player like as salt as switchable a defender all that stuff like he's still a guy who doesn't get off the ground and he's still a guy who who is undersized for the center position at six foot nine so I think having that seven footer, seven foot one, whatever Wiseman measures at, who can leap, like who who can match up physically and athletically with those types of other big men. I think that could be really important. It gives them a, a dynamic that they don't really have. And I, I'm just curious to see whether they can find a way to utilize him, whether he plays a part in a playoff series to the to the point that, you know, they go into a matchup like that and they feel like they have more of an answer mm-hmm. to you know, one of those pogo stick bigs. And I, I also really wonder, 
like, will we start to see what is the optimal use of him at the defensive end of the floor? Because I think offensively, we have a pretty good sense of how he's going to be used. Although, you know, some of the like post touches and the high low stuff from that preseason game made me think maybe they have like a little bit more complexity that they can introduce as a rookie. It was very much like, you know, Steve Kerr saying, okay, when Wiseman's on the floor, we got to simplify our offense. Yeah. It's not a lot of the heavy motion stuff. We're going to run a lot of, you like more high pick and roll with Steph and just keep things simple for Wiseman. I still think that's going to be like his bread and butter is just screening and diving and, you know, probably running a lot of the dribble handoff game. But defensively, like, is he best in a drop? Is he best playing at the level? Can he switch? Like, I think in his rookie year, I, we actually saw him playing at the level a decent amount. And the question with that is always, okay, are, you know, is this team doing this because they think this guy is really good at playing at the level? Like he can corral ball handlers, he can be disruptive. Or is it because he sucks as a drop defender? Right. You know? So I'm curious to see where they land on that this season and what that portends for the future. All right, we just did 15 minutes on James Wiseman. We will not be able to do that for all eight players. Anthony Davis. There's not much about Anthony Davis that we're about to talk about that we haven't talked about. You know, over the years, you mentioned it in your piece. They, he has missed more than half his team's games over the last two seasons. He's only cracked the 70-game mark twice in his 10 year career i think what's interesting that you noted in the piece it's something i talked about it a lot last year too you know when everyone kept citing like the injuries for the reason the lakers were bad yes that that was the biggest component of it most of it was that they were just not a good team anthony davis was not good enough last year i mentioned so many times last year that they lost the minutes lebron and ad shared the court which no matter how many times i say it still kind of blows my mind the minutes lebron james and anthony davis were on the court together they lost. But you also point out in the in your piece about Anthony Davis in this series that in the only 40 games he played, they went 17 and 23 and were outscored by three points per 100 possessions. Again, just more evidence that in addition to the Lakers obviously being poorly constructed around their stars, the stars themselves, Anthony Davis mostly, when we're talking about the stars last year, was not good enough. Yeah. And it's magnified when the supporting cast is poorly constructed around them. But hey, you're Anthony Davis. At some point, you got to kind of lift the tie here, like lift the team around you. He did not do that. So going into a season where Coach Ham and even LeBron are saying they are going to seed the offense to Anthony Davis, and at least to start the season, it's going to run through him. You'll be the number one. I already see you're shaking your head. Trust me, I'm doing the same thing. <laughs> so all these things that I just said, give, or maybe you won't give me, but I was going to say, give me reason to believe that this year is going to be different and Anthony Davis maybe he'll stay on the floor he'll be better than he has been in a couple years and you know at 29 there's still runway to you know for an upward trajectory from here like is there hope for any of that I'm not thinking about it as an upward trajectory as much as just a bounce back and like getting back to where he was and he's 29 like you mentioned so that should be possible yeah I can't speak to the injury stuff because like, how am I supposed to say whether he's going to stay healthy or not? Like if we're judging by precedent, the obvious answer would be no, he's not going to, but real quick, some of the funniest tweets I saw from media day when Anthony Davis talked about the the chip chip on his shoulder shoulder was like everyone, like so many different people quote tweeting it with Anthony Davis out four to six weeks with chip on his, after surgery to remove chip on his shoulder. Yeah. An obvious joke, but 
still a really good one on point yeah. yeah yeah um so yeah i like the odds are stacked against him playing more than 60 games even at this point but again he's 29 right like he should not be washed at 29 he should not be unable to stay on the floor and play a like a semi-healthy season at 29 and I think he cited, like he said, he had a wrist injury last year and that really affected his shooting. And my God, was his shooting a huge yeah. part of his his down year at the offensive end? Because you look at everything else, it was pretty much where it's been. You know, like yeah. he shot, I don't know, 18% from three-point range. He was like 39% on all two-pointers outside the restricted area. So when you look at stuff like his isolation scoring, which really cratered... Uh, and obviously just like the Lakers offense as a whole, when he was on the floor, the lack of spacing and him in some cases having to be that spacer and obviously not doing it very effectively. I think a lot of that just does come down to the shooting. And if that can rebound, I'm not saying it has to go back to being what it was in the bubble, because I think we're, I think we can agree that was the aberration. Right. But if it settles somewhere in between that and what it was last season, that makes a huge difference because as a driver, as a post player, you know, all of that stuff was pretty much where it's been for him throughout his career. His numbers as a pick and roll finisher did really go down. But I honestly, I chalk up a lot of that to the fact that they're just like the Lakers offense had no spacing around him. Like it's really hard to finish on the pick and roll when it's not a spread pick and roll. Like you can't space the floor around it and the opposing team is going to jam up the middle and that's going to make it really difficult to be a finisher. But in terms of like, his actual like at rim numbers, some of the best of his career, you know, like shot 72% at the rim. Um, but all the shooting stuff, including his free throws, free throw shooting down to 71% worst of his career. Um, if that can rebound, I feel like that could go a long, long way. As far as running the offense through him, I'm sorry, that's a terrible idea. And if they actually do set out to do that, it's not going to last very long because that's just not like Anthony Davis is a play finisher. Right, that's what I say. He does not have the playmaking chops to, uh, you know, maybe the discussion of whether he should have developed them at some point over the last ten years is a, discu- is a discussion for another day. But he does not possess the playmaking abilities and or vision necessary to be like the absolute hub of an offense. Um, right. And the thing I was going to say though is like I agree with you that I mean we were both shaking our heads as I was talking about the you know their plan have him be the number one guy and have the offense run through him. I agree with you. That's not going to last, but at some point when they kind of, or when LeBron retakes and reclaims the reins to this offense, or at some point, if coach ham has to sit him down and say, Hey, okay, we tried it. You know, it, it didn't really work. It's going to go back to a bit more of a Braun centric or, you know, it's not going to funnel through you as much. Is that then not going to cause some sort of like disturbance or annoyance on Anthony Davis part? Not that it won't be the right decision from ham and LeBron, but I don't know, like in unless they had seen something in camp or over the summer, like to to make them believe he was now ready for it. I just feel like coming out and making these grand statements that it's going to be his offense to start is a recipe for disaster. Not only because I don't think he can be that guy, but because then you're going to have to have the awkward moment in conversation where you then say, "Hey, I know everything we said, but it's actually no longer your offense. Like it's going back to Braun. You're not good. Like you know what I mean? They're just setting themselves up to have to take something away from him." later in the season to me that's the way i view it sure but like also who knows the extent to which the conversations that have been going on behind closed doors actually mirror what's being said at media day 
This is why I tend to not pay attention to media day at all because right, I think, which is a good good rule in general. <laughs> yeah, I don't I, I don't think there's much to be gleaned from any of it, and I know we're going to talk about this later. So yeah, we can but get I mean, into the it. only thing quickly I'd say, but I think that's us as you know either media or fans. I agree with that. I think if you're a player and your coach on media day or going into camp is saying, "Hey, this guy's the like going to be who the offense runs through and our number one guy." I think that's different than being a fan or a, a b- reporter and saying, "I don't take much stock in media day." Well, okay, so like LeBron's also out there see- saying, "You know, Russ is going to have a great season. We stand behind him." Like it's you know, is is Russ then going to turn around and like feel slighted when it turns out that the, the organization doesn't actually have his back, or does he? Yes, does yes. He under- it's Russell Westbrook feeling? Sl- yes, absolutely. He's gonna no, feel because I actually think you know Russ isn't the most self-aware guy in the world, but <laughs> right. I think he actually does know where he stands with the organization, well, regardless of what I, anybody said about him on media day. I know you didn't pay attention to media day, but please tell me you saw the awkwardness of the photo of the Lakers' supposed big three with LeBron, AD, and Russ when Russ actually had to be told to stand closer because there was an awkward gap between him and LeBron and AD. LeBron and AD were basically like their hips are touching in this picture, and Russ is probably like a good foot and a half away. It was like the best possible embodiment of the Lakers. I didn't see that, but... I hope to see it used in meme format throughout the season where you you remember like when LeBron tried to have the whole team traded for AD like, you know, yeah. three years ago or whenever that happened. And there was that photo of him sitting at the end of the bench, like yeah. eight spots clear of anyone else on the roster. Yeah. And everyone like people were making memes where they just kept making that gap longer, <laughs> longer yes. and longer. That's what I hope to see uh, that photo morph into over the course of the season because yeah. Uh, yeah, there's going to be a lot of like just general discomfort mm-hmm. uh, going on with this team until that situation resolves itself. And I'm pretty surprised that he they made it to media day with him still on the roster. Are you? I am and I'm not because I, I didn't, as much as I knew and we all knew they wanted to get rid of him desperately, we also knew that the, like the the market wasn't going to be there. And so it really comes down to them, you know, attaching both of their remaining first round picks over the next, however many years it is that they can trade. And they weren't willing to do that. I mean, I guess I'm not that surprised real quickly before we move on. You know, you mentioned some of the stuff that was still there for Anthony Davis offensively, other than the shooting with the wrist issue. You know, it wasn't really there compared to the usual from Anthony Davis. Yeah. The defense. Exactly. And that he can't blame that on a wrist injury. No, and I, I don't want to make any excuses for him. Like, he was not up to par by his standards defensively last year. But I am going to make a small <laughs> excuse for him right. in terms of, okay, so he played more center last year than he had in yep. his previous two years with the Lakers. That was part of the reason he, he added some muscle mass in the offseason, which maybe contributed to him looking, you know, a half step <laughs> or a full step slower last year. But I, I just... I continue to think, like, yes, I, th- I think in the past, lineups with AD at center have been like a trump card for the Lakers. Uh, you know, during their championship run, that was like when they needed to, to put a team away, they would roll out that lineup and it would be done and dusted. Like, that was the best look for them. But that is just so contingent on having the guys to fill those lineups out. And they didn't have that last year. I don't know if they have that this year. And I guess that's my big concern. Like I I pointed to those rim protecting numbers and how much worse they looked last year than his first couple of years in LA. 
you know, 62% shooting at the rim for opponents when he was in the vicinity, one of the worst marks of his whole career. He also had to defend more shots at the rim than he ever had in any other season. So part of that is he was playing center more. He's the last line of defense. He has to clean that stuff up more than he ever has before. Part of it is he got hung out to dry, man. There was no resistance at the point of attack. And it's just hard to be put in that situation over and over and over again, especially when you're probably not anywhere close to peak health. And I do think there may be incremental upgrades, but I do think it's going to be a little bit easier this year. Like Pat Beverly on the perimeter, that's going to make a difference. You know, even like their depth pieces, I just feel like are a little bit more defensively versatile. You know, whether it's Juan Toscano Anderson, Troy Brown, like those aren't exciting names by any means, but compared to the like geriatric, you know, one dimensional role players I had coming off the bench last year, I think it's going to be an improvement. Yeah, and it's about time the Lakers had some just decent players, regardless of name, as opposed to exciting names who are no longer decent players. Right. But I guess, you know, the issue... Or, or the question that I still have is like, okay, so is he going to be asked to play that much center again? Is he up for that challenge? Because, you know, apart from him, I don't, they haven't really addressed that issue. Like, no, Thomas Bryant might be the worst defensive center in the entire NBA. So that's not improving their interior defense. Damian Jones, maybe, but like, I don't know. This is why I think we we sort of figured at some point if they couldn't get the Kyrie thing done, then pivoting to that potential deal with the Pacers was like the next most logical thing where maybe you could pull in a Miles Turner and that's a front court that could kind of work offensively while obviously being really stout defensively. And that move like we sort of discussed, like what, you know, healed and Turner coming back Westbrook going out along with probably the, the two first round picks probably still wouldn't make them good enough to really contend for a championship because they would just be totally devoid of secondary ball handling. But I I sure think that would make them a whole lot better and just more functional as a team. Um, But like, you know, to go back to the offensive stuff, it's like, I I mentioned like they did, they didn't have the right offensive environment for him to thrive as a play finisher as like a pick and roll dive man. And that hasn't really changed. Like the spacing is still not going to be great. Uh, and you're, you're still going to have non pull up threats, like running the other end of the pick and roll. And like, how do you thrive as a dive man in the NBA? It's like, you have optimal spacing around the pick and roll and you have guys who are real threats to pull up who are the ball handlers in those situations. Like that's what frees you up to actually finish. And the Lakers don't really have any of that. So what that means, I guess, is like, we're still going to see a lot more of this, like, entering the ball to AD and like the poster at the elbow and letting him try to create like out of the triple threat. And if the jumper is there, then that's viable. And if it's not, then it's not. So I don't know, I guess it's just, it's all a big question mark to me. And that's why it's interesting because if he is the AD of two years ago, I I don't think the Lakers are going to win a championship, but like they can be a real pain in the ass in the playoffs. Absolutely. But if he's what he was last year, they're winning, they're, like, they're, they're, I don't they're winning like 36 games and maybe getting a play-in game. If he is what he was last year in terms of availability and performance, the Kings are beating them out for a play-in I was, spot. I was going to say your Sacramento Kings will, will beat them. Yeah. Okay, you talk about question marks. There is no bigger question mark on this list than Ben Simmons. 
<laughs> now, well, listen, when the trade happened, we were on the same page then. I think we're still on the same page now that Brooklyn was the perfect landing spot for him after coming from an environment that was like the worst for him. He has two ball-dominant offensive superstars. Uh, obviously, less offensive initiation is needed from him now, but certainly less offensive finishing is needed from him than ever before, and that's good for him. He can be that kind of like playmaking big we've always envisioned that he can be, who leads defensively, who makes them more switchable defensively, who's still an absolute beast in transition and can find his opportunities offensively. I think if he's actually finally healthy, uh, first and foremost, if he is feeling good mentally, which he has talked about, then I think he could be in line for like a really good bounce back here. For a team that, again, could, the big could be good if their stars are in the lineup. Now, having said all that, there was a point of the your um, feature on Ben that I wanted to pinpoint and ask you about. And it was that you wrote, to embody the quote-unquote Draymond role so many have envisioned for him, Simmons needs to show an appetite for screening he hasn't shown yet in his career and let go of whatever conception he wants had of himself as a point guard. The conception he wants had of himself as a point guard, obviously, I think we get that. But when you talk about him needing to show an appetite for screening he hasn't yet shown to really embody the Draymond Green. Tell us what you mean. Well, I think those two things go hand in hand, right? Like if you conceive of yourself as a point guard, you don't think of yourself as somebody who's running around screening right. for other people. But if if you're the Brooklyn Nets, if you're Steve Nash and you're trying to construct the best possible version of this half-court offense, it doesn't really involve Ben Simmons initiating possessions with the ball in his hands. That doesn't mean he's not going to have the ball in his hands. But I think you conceive of him more as like a connective playmaker and a play finisher and somebody who's going to be able to capitalize on the immense gravity of guys like Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. And like you think about the offensive possibilities there. I mean, you want to talk about like L.A. and how they don't have the spread, nor do they have like the pull up chops in the pick and roll to make somebody effective as a roller like the Nets have that in spades, man. I'm like at any given time, Ben Simmons is going to be on the floor with multiple of the best shooters of all time. Yep. Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, Seth Curry, Joe Harris, Patty Mills. I mean, some of the best shooters of all time. He's going to be working with a spread floor with guys who are going to consistently draw two to the ball because of the pull-up threat. And if he wants to, if he wants to be that screen and dive guy, the, the, that four on three playmaker, the Draymond that everyone is always like, you need Ben Simmons in the Draymond role. That's going to be perfect for him. He can do that. He just has to want to do that. He has to, he has to sort of see that for himself and see the possibility there because yeah, as a guy like running the four on three, I mean, he's a really good passer. Incredible. And I think in terms of, you know, like, yeah, Ben Simmons is not like the greatest finisher in the world, and he has been resistant to contact, afraid to get fouled because of his really poor free throw shooting. But look, man, Draymond's not like a great finisher. Draymond's never been a good scorer. Uh, there have been times when, you know, he doesn't even look at the basket. So he's managed to be effective in that role. I think Ben Simmons can too if he embraces it. But it's got to be a more... It doesn't even have to, he doesn't have to think about it as like, oh, I'm, I'm being selfless. Like I'm sacrificing for the team because I, you know, 
me as sort of like an outside observer, I wouldn't see it that way. I would, I would right. see it as, well, this is what's best for me too. Like this is the role in which I'm going to thrive. All these guys creating advantages for me, not me trying to create advantages for myself or for other people, which he was forced to try and do in Philly because they're just, for the most part, wasn't somebody else to do it. Yep. And even when like, yeah, they had Jimmy Butler there who kind of served as that nominal point guard in the playoffs for them that year. Well, Simmons is still on the floor with Embiid a lot of the time, and the middle of the floor is kind of Embiid's purview, and that leaves Simmons sort of in no man's land, not knowing where to go or what to do and not really touching the ball. But I don't think that has to be the case here. Like, I think he can really thrive in this offensive environment. And if he can't, if he can't do it here, he can't do it anywhere. So That's that's what I was going to say. This is... This is very much make or break for him because it's you, you could not construct or con, you could not conceive of a more perfect environment for Ben Simmons and his skill set to thrive than this specific Nets team. And you know what? I think he will thrive. I maybe it sounds crazy given that he hasn't played in like a year and a half. I'd say I have more faith in the Nets getting a consistent like Ben Simmons this season than, than I do in them getting a consistent Kyrie Irving. Um, yeah, and to, I will damn him with the faintest of praise. <laughs> yeah, true. But I will say too, like even if anyone's seen Ben Simmons on JJ Reddick's podcast, I thought Ben spoke pretty well and like candidly about everything, even the, you know, the botched or like the dunk that never was against Atlanta and that series and everything. And I will say as much as Ben Simmons gets clowned, and I think there have been, there have been plenty of times in his career where he's deserved it. I think that as much as he gets clowned, when you like listen to him talk, he's got more self-awareness and seems like more, I don't know if grounded is the right word, but just seems like more, yeah, I guess aware of everything, faults included, than when you listen to KD and Kyrie, well, Kyrie especially, but that's a different animal. We tackled that last week. Like even you contrast Ben Simmons talking about everything on that podcast with JJ Redick and then like Kevin Durant at Media Day you know, saying that the uncertain team uncertainty was part of the reason that he wanted out or like uh, citing the how poorly the Nets played during the stretch when he was out as part of the reason like he was like, you know, disenchanted with that team or whatever. It's like, dude, first of all, you're Kevin Durant and you were out for like a month and a half because of injury. I'm not faulting you for being injured, but So one, have some awareness there. What do you think is going to happen to a team led by you when you're out? Second of all, a big reason they struggled during that stretch and you were out is because Kyrie Irving also missed like 10 or 9 or 10 of those 21 games you were out injured because he wasn't vaccinated and couldn't play in certain places. So there's that. Um, James Harden got traded literally in the middle of that specific stretch. KD was, you know, upset about that they didn't play well and the reason James Harden wanted out is because of all the uncertainty around. And when you boil it all down, it comes back to something I referenced many times. And I know we're getting really off topic here. This is supposed to be a Ben Simmons thing. But when you boil, like really think about it, it, that uncertainty all comes down to Kyrie Irving and the guy that Kevin Durant chose to hitch his on-court wagon to for the next few years when he teamed up with him in 2019, knowing full well everything we already knew about Kyrie Irving. So it's like, I'm not saying he should have come out on media day and thrown Kyrie Irving under the bus. But I am saying, given what, like, Kevin Durant's apparent frustrations with the team and, like, why he wanted out and all this, and the fact he wanted Steve Nash and Sean Marks fired, 
just continues to speak to like a complete lack of not even self-awareness, but like Kyrie awareness or like not realizing what the problem is or why the uncertainty was there in the first place or why the team struggled with, like during that stretch without you. And anyway, that's just a really long-winded way of saying that to bring it back to Ben Simmons, when you like compare the way Durant talks, or, like seemingly not understanding where the uncertainty stems from, when you compare obviously the way Kyrie talks, and then you listen to Ben Simmons talk even about his faults or his lowest moments, he is by far the most self-aware, grounded, and often logical one of these three. Yeah. But I think we should also note that it it has taken Ben Simmons like a year and a half to come out and say any of this <laughs> yes, stuff. Very true. And I don't know if he's just been taking all that time to think about it and has sort of arrived at this place after 18 months of introspection or whether he's known it the entire time and just decided for whatever reason not to say anything. But he sure sat on it for a while. Look, be that as it may, I think there is a path and a lot of things have to happen that are maybe unlikely. But there is a path for this Nets team to be really, really good and for Ben Simmons to be a super important part of that. And so we talked about all the offensive stuff, but like the real place that he's going to help this team is at the defensive end. Yeah. And like I, I, we talk a lot about how those two ends of the floor go hand in hand. They're not really separate entities because I think what might make or break this Nets team is how good can they be defensively with Simmons at the five? Because they can be really, really good offensively with him at the five. And with him at the four or, you know, whatever position you want to call him, I guess. And, you know, like a Nick Claxton on the floor as well. That offense is going to be not nearly as good. Yeah. So I think like Simmons as a center or like Simmons as the the nominal center, as the tallest player on the floor, let's say has never really been a successful formula in the past. It's always been a lot better in theory than it has been in reality because Simmons is actually a much better perimeter defender to me than he is an interior defender. He's, uh, you know, not an especially good rim protector. Like as a weak side rim protector, sure, but as kind of like that anchor of the back line, not ideal. Mm -hmm. But if he's, you know, playing nominal five and standing right next to him is like, you know, six foot 11 Kevin Durant... Maybe that makes it work. You know, maybe that is enough size and enough weak side help uh, to allow them to function defensively. Because, you know, if you run a lineup out there of like him, KD, Royce O'Neal, Joe Harris, Kyrie, like that's not that's not incredible defensively. But that's at least three guys up front who are going to be solid, who are going to put up at least, you know, like some resistance on the perimeter and then still have some size behind them uh, and and some weak side rim protection. Like I, the, the the primary rim protection is still a weakness for this team. But if that lineup, if if or if that configuration with Simmons at the five can defend, this team can win the Eastern Conference. They can win the championship. This team can win the championship. You know, yeah. like that's, it can and again, that that's going to require a lot of things. It's going to require buy-in from three of the flakiest stars in the NBA. But it's there for them. Like, the path is there. And yeah. Simmons, to me, could be the key to making it all work. But there are obviously just so many questions about his physical health, his mental health, his ability to 
you know, buy into a, a different kind of role for himself. And I don't know, I just I, like I can I can see it in my head and it can really work. One of the things I mentioned, you know, like the Nets are a really good transition team. Kyrie and KD, very, very good in the open floor, but they played at a super slow pace last year. Part of that was like they were 25th in the league in forcing turnovers. Ben Simmons forces a shit ton of turnovers. Ben Simmons is incredible in transition. Like that's a positive feedback loop that can really benefit Brooklyn, right? He allows them to force more turnovers, which gets them out in transition more, which makes their offense that much better. Like that's just one thing where I, I feel, you know, he, he could really be the right ingredient to add to this mix as much as from an off-court perspective, from a personality standpoint, maybe he is the wrong type of ingredient. The on-court stuff, it's like, Perfect. man, it's all there. Yep. So that's why I just think he's super fascinating. And I also want to say, man, like I know I, I'm not like the biggest Ben Simmons fan in the world. And I've been pretty critical of him on this podcast at various points in time. But I want this for him. Yep. Like I think he has he has taken so much shit. Some of it deserved, a lot of it not. And even just like, like I published that piece and I, I don't make a habit of like reading the comments or putting too much stock in them typically, but it is like shocking to me how many people just straight up loathe this dude yeah. and like want to see him fail and are already dismissing him as like a bum thinking that he straight up sucks at basketball. And I just think like, that's, I know how like NBA discourse works and like, you know, even the best players in the league are not <laughs> impervious to, to this kind of slander, but like Ben Simmons is a good basketball player. And I, I just, I I really want him to like come out and remind people of that. And I really want to see the optimized version of him. Like the best version of Ben Simmons can, can turn this team into a championship contender. And I want to see that happen. So do I. Uh, breaking news on the show before we go to break here. Blake Griffin is signed with the Boston Celtics. We don't have to provide any tangible analysis. I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, yeah, well, I mean, that's they, they needed big man depth. And we talked yeah. about that on the episode where, by the way, even at the time, the, the timeline on Rob Williams was four to six weeks, and now that's been doubled to eight to 12 weeks. Yeah. So yeah, they need the big man depth. I don't know if that is specifically the type of big man depth that they needed. Like, I honestly think, you know, a, a Hassan Whiteside type would have made more sense for them to sign, like somebody who actually gives them a bit of an interior presence at both ends of the floor. Blake Griffin doesn't do that at this point yeah. in his career. Um, he's like strictly a pick and pop guy on offense and yeah. really he, not offering much rim protection at all on defense. At, so At this stage of his career, not that obviously the skill sets are ex exactly the same, but at this stage of his career, he's probably closer to like the, Gal the, the Gallo replacement than he is like any kind of big man. I think that's spot on, yeah. And uh, I don't, I'm not ready to talk about Gallo. It's going to make me too sad. <laughs> All right, let's take the break, come back, and for the love of God, let's try not to take another 49 minutes to get through the rest of this list. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, well, Fawn, 
We're back, continuing going through the eight important players that you highlighted over a six-part series on the Score app. Next, I want to talk about three players, each coming back from injury, that you grouped together in one post, and those would be Kawhi Leonard, Jamal Murray, and Zion Williamson. You grouped them together as somewhat of a, um, you know, like these three returning players who could swing the Western Conference and could definitely help define where the Western Conference goes this season. Maybe the way to do it is like, how would you maybe rank these players in terms of not not their abilities, but rank them in terms of the faith you have in their ability to get back to whatever level they were at pre-injury? Man, that's really tough because honestly, in terms of just getting back to the same level or even exceeding that level, I kind of think Zion Agreed. just because he is the youngest of them the potential for him, like in terms of like untapped potential, I guess like unexplored potential for him, I think is still the greatest of all those guys. Like I don't, you know, Kawhi's not going to come back a better version of Kawhi. Right. Uh, you know, Jamal Murray, I guess could, he's still obviously super young himself and was on a real upswing when he took that injury. But I just think with Zion, like there is the most untapped potential still there, but he is also the biggest injury risk. You know, yeah. like the, if I was saying which of these players is most likely to do exactly what we've seen them do in the past, then in spite of the the physical condition that he looks to be in, uh, I, you know, you still have to be super concerned about Zion once again, you know, suffering an injury and playing 25 games. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, I, I can't put him number one just because, you know, that, that injury risk is too great. I think it's, I guess it's Kawhi. Like, I just think Kawhi is a cyborg. He's inevitable. And at the end of the day, like, there's very little doubt in my mind that he is going to come back and look pretty close to, if not exactly like the Kawhi Leonard that we remember. And we also know the Clippers are going to be very cautious with him. I mean, he was being load managed before he tore his ACL. So you can imagine what that, uh, you know, what that regimen is going to look like now that he's coming back from it and is, uh, you know, what, three years older than he was, I guess, when he when when load management was invented because he was coming yep. off of uh, this mysterious quad injury. Technically four years older from the start of that season. Right. Sorry, four years older. So yeah. uh, I think he was like 27 at the start of that season with the Raptors and now he's 31. It's a big difference. Yeah, with, uh, with a torn ACL in between. Exactly. So... Uh, that season with the Raptors, coming back, coming off of that quad injury, he played 60 games. Yeah, uh, Didn't play any back-to-backs. And then I think he might have played like a little bit more than that in his two seasons with the Clippers, but still was like mostly not playing back-to-backs and was obviously still on like a bit of a rest plan. So how many games is Kawhi going to play? You think he's going to play 60 games? I think he'll be around 60. Okay. Like I think if he's healthy... I'd, I'd peg it between 60, 65 tops. Right. Like you could remember, you talk about that 2019 Raptors run and, and him only playing 60 games. They won the championship that year. They played four rounds, averaged six games per series. They played 24 playoff games, went all the way, and his final t- tally for the season was 84 games played. Mm-hmm. You know, like, so, and again, four years ago or three and a half years ago, pre-ACL injury, I'd say if the Clippers, which they obviously do, want him to be able to last four rounds from April to June, giving them what they need him to give them. Yeah. He probably can't play more than 60, 65 tops in the regular season. Yeah. Uh, good news on that front is the Clippers are like, might be the deepest team in the league. 
I don't even know if this would qualify as a hot take, although I think it kind of does. Talk about the Clippers being a deep team. If the three guys we're talking about right now, Kawhi Leonard, Zion Williamson, and Jamal Murray, are healthy this season, get back to anything close to what they can be at their best, I think these are the three best teams in the Western Conference. I would put the Warriors in that mix as well, but I think they're three of the top four. Yeah. Like, that's... I I 100% agree. I mean, who else is kind of butting into that conversation? I think the Wolves have a case. Yes, I think they have a chance. Look, I know... You you could not have asked for a worse start to a Memphis? season for the Phoenix Suns. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> but this team still won, won 64 games last year. Like... They they did, and I know at the end of the day it comes down to like what you do on the basketball court, and some of the, like a lot of stuff won't matter. And again, we're about to talk about media day, but yeah. I have never, and I mean I wasn't there, just like watching the clips or whatever, reading the reports. I have the, never the seen are bad. a good team look so much like they want the season to be over before it's begun than the Phoenix Suns at media day this year. Yeah, the vibes and I do bad. not think I like again. There is no tangible basketball analysis there, but that cannot be a good thing, man. No, I know, and I honestly, I'm trying to avoid falling into the same trap that I fell into with Utah last year, where I was like, man, I know like the vibes don't seem great in Utah. They just had this really bad playoff loss to a team they should have beaten. Their two best players don't seem to like each other very much, but. In terms of just on-court stuff, like this team should still be really, really good. I picked them to win the freaking Western Conference last year. And yeah, I think I have to acknowledge that despite the fact that, and even on-court, like you don't know what Chris Paul is going to be in his, yep. you know, now age 38 season. So, uh, or like what DeAndre Ayton is going to give them. Is he going to be totally checked out? Is he going to be motivated by wanting to get traded? And so he'll boost his trade stock by playing his ass off. Who the hell knows? Uh Bad vibes. So maybe they're not in that group. Um, Memphis, yeah. I mean, even though I kind of like tabbed them as a, a as a regression candidate, still a really deep, really talented team. And if Jaron Jackson comes back and is Jaron Jackson again, then yeah, they could be in that mix too. It's a deep conference. I, I think I agree with you, man. If those guys are all like back at full flight, I think those are three of the top four. Yep. We've talked about the Pelicans a lot, so I don't need to like delve too deep into Zion. Yeah. I will just say... And I talked about this with uh, Samson when when we had him on as a guest and we were talking, like kind of making the case for the Pelicans as a championship contender. Zion's last healthy season, 27 and a half points, 65% true shooting, 13.4 attempts per game at the rim. The next closest in the league to that number was Giannis at nine. He's taking like four and a half more shots per game at the rim than anybody else in the league. Like this, this team's going to be a handful on offense because they, unlike past iterations, like they surround him with a ton of offensive talent on the perimeter and the interior. He's averaged 25.7 points on 60% true shooting in only 85 career games, but still minimum 80 games played. Can you name the other players in history? who have averaged 25-plus on 60% true shooting for their careers, 80-plus games. Steph Curry. You're already wrong because the answer is zero. 
No player in history other than Zion Williamson has done that. Now, again, the caveat being it's 85. It's basically the equivalent of like just over one actual season. Steph doesn't hit those benchmarks, eh? Not for his career. No. You could pick out seasons he's done it, obviously. Yeah. But not for his career. Again, that's the thing with Zion. Once he gets up to 100, 150, 200 games, the chances of that still holding, unlikely, but not impossible given his skill set. What I'd say to you is uh, not to cut you short on Kawhi or Zion, but I think we have talked about those guys a lot more in general. Mm-hmm. So talk to me a bit about Jamal Murray and why you either do or don't have faith that he can be the guy he was pre-injury. Well, I mean, even he in talking to the media has sort of come out and said like, my style is going to be a little bit different. Yeah. It's it's not going to look great right away. It's going to take some time, but eventually I'm going to get there. So he's like coming out and tempering expectations, and I I think that's probably right. I think it's it's he's not going to look like the Jamal Murray we remember right away. He's probably not going to be pl- like I, what's he going to be playing right off the hop? You know, 25 minutes a game maybe. But look, young guy, these ACL injuries are not the sort of career ruiners that they've been in the past we've seen a lot of guys return from them uh, looking you know not much worse for wear if at all and I just think you know not that like his game isn't predicated on athleticism of a certain kind but I think the craft with Murray is what makes him so great like the ball handling just the sort of the savviness in terms of how he moves without the ball, the shooting ability, obviously the the playmaking, which I think has really come a long way. And then he gets to play next to Nikola Jokic, man. I mean, that just, first of all, the skill sets of those two guys mesh incredibly well. They have an unbelievable synergy that, you know, they played together for five plus years. Like they know each other's tendencies perfectly. Their two man game was like a well-rehearsed ballet. So, I think that helps just coming back and getting to play next to a guy, you know, orbit that type of powerful sun where you just feed off of that. And, and you know, Jokic is going to put you in the right spots. I think that's going to make his transition easier in a way that like, there's nobody on the Clippers who can remotely do that for Kawhi. There are a couple guys actually on the Pelicans who could probably do that for Zion. Uh, not that he really needs it, but uh, I just think that's going to really ease his transition back. And ultimately, for the Nuggets, it's less honestly about like what Jamal Murray does individually, and it's more about the magic that those two guys can create together. That was like the the hub of their offense before he got injured, and it's going to be the same thing once he gets back. And yeah, at a certain point, like they're going to get into the playoffs, and in order to avoid the fate that has befallen them in the playoffs in the past... Jokic is going to need Murray to be something close to Murray. Like he was going to need somebody to take a lot of that playmaking responsibility off his shoulders. He is going to need somebody who can create the advantages for him rather than him having to create them for himself and everybody else, because it takes too much of a toll on him. And, uh, you know, not even like his offensive production pretty much sustains itself no matter what. But in terms of, you know, being able to have something left, to play functional defense in the playoffs uh, in terms of being able to get through the toughest defenses deep in the postseason, um, Yeah. They're going to need Murray operating at something close to peak capacity. And I think the fact that they can kind of ease him up to that yes. is going to be really important. Um, like they won 48 games last year with 
no Jamal Murray, and nine very ineffectual games from Michael Porter Jr. Like the thought of those two guys being back and healthy. And just getting them up to close to full capacity by April, which is really all they need to do. Right. That team could be scary. Like if if we see the best versions, you know, the best versions that we've seen to date, let's say, of Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr., I think this is the best team in the West. I said this two years ago when they made the trade for Aaron Gordon, the way they looked those first the first month after that, that I would have picked them to win the damn championship that year had they stayed healthy. And I'm saying it again now that if, to your point just now, if Murray and Porter are just what we've seen of them at their best so far in their careers by April, not any time in the next month or two. And the beauty of it is you have Nikola Jokic and the team they've got that just won 48 games without those guys. They can afford to slowly ramp those guys up in the regular season and still yeah. feel pretty secure. They'll be a top six, avoid the play and all that. If those two guys are healthy come April, this is my championship pick. Interesting. It's a big if, and we'll get more into it when we do like our full on predictions in a couple months, but or a couple weeks, but that's how much faith I have in this core. Yeah. So I, and I think the maybe the concern that I have, and this, this is part of like this idea of sort of easing him back in, and maybe this undercuts it a little bit. I, I liked the, the trade for them getting KCP because yeah. I think he's a perfect fit with that starting lineup. But what worried me about it, I mean, they give up Monty Morris in that deal. And, you know, KCP is not providing much, if any, supplemental ball handling. That's like showing a lot of faith in Murray's ability to like get back up to speed pretty quickly. Because there's not a lot of other guys who can take that yeah. responsibility off of his shoulders. And we know like MPJ is not that guy. He's not running yeah. pick and rolls. Like no. he's barely dribbling the ball. He's not a playmaker. Like he's coming off of screens and catching and shooting or he's shooting off of handoffs. Like uh, in terms of like initiating, creating for others, playmaking, all that stuff, like that's, that's on Murray's shoulders. And, you know, it's like Mon Monty Morris is not a sexy player, but he was one of the best backup point guards in the league and somebody who could certainly at least shoulder some of that load. Uh, and he's gone now. So that's, I guess, part of the concern that I have about that. Uh, and maybe, maybe it's not a concern. Maybe the fact that the, the nuggets are showing that faith in Murray tells us all we need to know. But yeah, I guess that's, uh, if I'm flagging something, if there's a red flag there that I want to note, I guess it's that, um, maybe the one thing that could assuage that is like a leap from bones Highland. Yeah. Cause who could be a breakout player this year. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll get we'll into talk that on about a him maybe next week or a couple weeks from now. Yeah. yeah, we'll get into that on a future episode. But yeah, man, I think if he can make like to me, there's a chance he could have a, a maxi like leap wow in year two. Because I like a, he's got a lot of the same skills, man. I, and I agree. Yeah, I agree. I think he can be really good and very soon. I think he could be part of a team. I just said you know could win the championship this year. The maxi leap would be a big one. And should we just use that as a segue to talk about Tyrese Maxi? <laughs> I think because yeah. he leap is an understatement for what, like, you know, the step he took last season. One of the, I guess you could say one of the breakout stars of the postseason. I think if you had been paying attention to the Sixers over the course of the season, I don't think what he did in the playoffs was that surprising. But mm. I think to the average viewer, someone who has that can't tune in to every single NBA game the way we can, I definitely think he surprised a lot of people in the playoffs with his play. I don't think it was an aberration. I think he can be that guy pretty consistently. I think what's exciting, if you're a Sixers fan, 
is that, and you you mentioned this in the post uh, about Maxi that Philly outscored opponents by 15.1 points per 100 possessions with Embiid, Harden, and Maxi on the floor during the regular season uh, together last year. And that was with a James Harden who wasn't far from his best. And even if he can never be peak James Harden again, I can pretty much promise you he can be better than the Harden he was down the stretch of last season. And Tyrese Maxey, who is, you know, in the early stages of an upward trajectory. So if they were that good together last year, and both Harden and Maxey should be better this year, it really, really has to have you excited about how good the Sixers would be. And again, and then it's all that with like P.J. Tucker station in the corner. This, the offense could be scary, scary good. Talk to me about Tyrese Maxey. Okay, so just right off the jump, can he back up the shooting leap that he made? Because that was, you know, one of the most important developments in the league last season. Because, like, you you look at a guy who has an incredible first step, right? Like, maybe the best in the entire league. Just, he is in the paint, on top of the rim, in the blink of an eye. And suddenly, it's like, like defenders have to account for that, right? Like the on-ball defender has to press up on him or if he's running pick and roll, you can't go under and as just forcing the defense into an impossible decision. And then you think about him off-ball and the the kind of attention that Embiid draws and that Harden draws, like even in his diminished state and where it might otherwise have come from. We saw in that series against the Raptors, like the Raptors tried to gap him Mm-hmm. And have his defender come and stunt over to take away the middle of the floor from Harden, stunted and beat in the post. And oh my God, did he gash them for it. Like any little horizontal gap that he could find off of the catch, he was exploding through it in a heartbeat. Not only was he like exploding through any horizontal gap that they gave him when he was attacking off the catch, but he's also raining threes on them when they gave him any bit of daylight to catch and shoot. So that's that's what the progression of the jump shot opened up for him. And I, I just have to wonder if it's real because he shot 29% from deep in his lone college season. And then as a rookie in the NBA, he shot 30%. And last year he went up to 43%. And that was by he did that while tripling his total number of three-point attempts from his rookie year. And he shot 40% off the dribble. 45% off the catch. And then in the playoffs, it mostly held up. He was, a, you, you know, he came down a little bit, but still 38% on like six three-point attempts per game in the playoffs. So as far as like a one-season proving ground goes, there's no indication in that sample that it wasn't real. It's really just the priors where we can look at and be like, okay, was this a one-season outlier or is this what he is now as a shooter? Because if that's what he is as a shooter, it's really almost a perfect offensive compliment him and Harden, if you think about it, because I think where Maxi is limited is as a playmaker. Harden takes care of so much of that. Where Harden is now seemingly limited is as a scorer and a guy who's like, you know, he's not getting to the rim as much. He's not finishing at the rim as much, but his passing opens up so much for Maxi. So you have like Harden as the initiator. Maxi is more of the play finisher. I think it's, it's kind of perfect. And we saw last year how potent offensively those two plus Embiid can be. And I think, yeah, there's no reason to think it won't be as potent or more more potent in year two with all three of those guys together. So the three-point shot, 
I do want to see him take strides as a playmaker. And again, it doesn't have to be as like, you know, an initiator from the top of the floor necessarily, but maybe as somebody who, once he gets into the paint, once he does collapse the defense, is he hitting more of those reads, the lay down passes, the spray outs to shooters, like the things that he was maybe not seeing last year. Is he, is he seeing like a little bit more, um, of that stuff because those opportunities are there for him because he's, he's blowing past the first line of defense, like so frequently that if he can just like improve his playmaking a little bit while remaining as good as he was last year, as like a driver and at rim scorer and shooter, I mean, this could be the best offense in the NBA. It might be anyway. Absolutely. The one thing I'll say when it comes to the three point uptick last year and whether that's sustainable, the reason I believe in it is that, what you mentioned, the volume of it. Like when a guy maybe goes from being a so-so shooter to randomly having this blip on the radar, hot shooting year percentage wise, but the volume isn't much different. And and you can say, okay, like look at the track record and then look at this one blip. I'll take the track record because it's all these years versus this one year where this guy's making one or two a game, whatever. But with Maxi, as you mentioned, like the, the difference in volume, you could take the number of threes and jumpers he took last season and put it against his rookie year or even his college. He probably took more shots last year than he did in all those years combined. So if anything, when you look at the volumes, there's actually more from a total shots perspective, there's actually more of a resume there that shows he's a good shooter or a great shooter than otherwise, not from a year's perspective, but from an actual shots perspective. And that gives me faith that he actually is you know, whether it's 43% again, okay, he might never shoot 43% again, but it's not because he's not that great of a shooter, just because that's really hard to do. But can he be like a consistent 40% high volume three-point shooter? I think he can be. And I think last year, because of the volume, is evidence that he can be. Yeah. And will be. Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, to the point about the playmaking, I guess, it's not a concern, but it's sort of a, okay, this this is what might make it more important or more incumbent on him to improve in that area is like, we saw, how did the Raptors get back into that series against Philly last year? Part of it was they started defending Harden differently. They started showing Harden less attention, less help at the top of the floor, and showing more help or tilting more help toward Maxi. They stopped treating Harden like a superstar scorer. Exactly, because he wasn't, you know, in right. that series. He wasn't, and maybe he isn't anymore. So if we start to see more of that, where the defense is more geared toward loading up on Maxi because they're less worried about him hurting them as a playmaker and more worried about him hurting them as a scorer and vice versa with Harden because it's sort of the other way around with him at this point of his career. Then suddenly, you know, if the playmaking limitations are still there, they're maybe going to look like bigger warts than they did last season. Um, but I'm not really worried about the offensive end. I think the bigger concern for Philly and it does fall on Maxi because of who he's playing in a backcourt next to is the defense. And as much as he's, uh, you know, he's undersized, I guess he's six, two, he's got a six, eight wingspan. Like he's super fast. He has, I feel like I didn't watch a ton of him in college, but I feel like reputationally he was a good defender in college. I think he has the tools to be at least an average. Yeah. He's a passive defender. defender. He can be. Yeah. But screen navigation has been a real challenge for him. Um, I think just anticipation in general, like getting beat off of the bounce. The attention related stuff doesn't yeah, match the, off, the, the, the tools stuff. related stuff defensively. And so, yeah, I mean like this, I, I'm looking at what could be Philly's undoing. 
And I'm thinking, man, Harden and Maxi at the point of attack in a playoff series where either one of those guys can get hunted and you don't necessarily have a lot of faith in the other guy covering for the player who is getting hunted. That that's worrisome. And so I think the, the, the biggest area that you would want to see him improve is at the defensive end. And I, I do honestly think that he is capable of doing it. It's just a question of like, you know, attention to detail, figuring out the footwork when it comes to navigating screens, better anticipation, things like that. And it's like those intangible things, it's like always impossible to project a leap on those fronts because you just don't know actually if a player is capable of figuring that stuff out or not. You know, there's no, I find it impossible to project it forward without actually being in the gym with that guy or seeing him practice day after day because how do you know? No, it's impossible until you see it in practice on the court in NBA games, whether mm-hmm. they've picked that stuff up or not. The Sixers should have an elite, absolutely elite offense and their ultimate ceiling might come down to either A, whether a maxi makes those kinds of defensive improvements or how much or how many fires Joel Embiid and PJ Tucker can put out. Right. All right, the last player on the list of guys we want to talk about that you wrote about Anthony Edwards, one of the most watchable. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I I was just saying, so I was just saying one of the most watchable players in the league. And then I was actually going to say, and one of like guy that comes across, like the easiest to root for. And as I was thinking that in my head, I remembered, oh shit, he just, yeah, he just revealed himself to not be easy to root for it. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, From that standpoint, obviously disgusting behavior, no excuse for it. I mean, all you can really say as cliche as it sounds is that you, you hope he's learned not just his lesson in terms of the fact that he got caught. You hope he's learned his lesson and actually becomes a better human being from this. Yeah. Well, like, is is getting caught the way to put it? Like, he put that out there into the right. world. Yeah. Which shows, like- which shows his, like, just stunning and abysmal lack of awareness, not self-awareness, but, like, the fact that he put that out there, not even realizing how much of a jerk that makes him look like, you know, what he's revealing about himself to the world. He put that out there, not thinking like as a, forget as a, on a, on a human level, obviously it it's terrible. Mm-hmm. But even if you wanted to be cynical about it, and if you're only looking at it as like him as a professional athlete with a brand and sponsors and all this behind him, the fact that he put that out there, not thinking about the ramifications of all that shows how just ignorant he is to all that. And obviously troubling, again, first and foremost, the, the worst part of it is as a human, it's wrong. There, there's not much more we can say about that because like we're not in his head. I don't know if he's learned anything or changed. Yeah. So as I don't want to sound callous, but for the purpose of today's episode, we're talking about him and, and what he can do on the court. But we're not ignoring the obvious transgression that he's made recently. A hundred percent. And I think, look, I yeah, is a $40,000 fine going to make somebody change their views if that's like how he truly feels about the LGBTQ community? Like, uh, probably not. Uh, if it was just, I mean, look, to, to be fully open and upfront about this when i was anthony edwards age i'm not gonna pretend that like i wasn't 
that ignorant and engaging in casual homophobia because that was part of the culture that I grew up in. I'm not making any excuses for myself, nor am I making any excuses for him. I would just hope that it is just a, a product of youth and ignorance more so than it is actual hate in his heart. Because, you know, this is one of those scenarios where it's not like, like, I would just prefer that he keep that to himself, even if he continues to have those feelings. Yeah. Because, you know, this isn't one of those situations where it's like, well, you know, you'd rather know who he is and, and like he's showing his true colors. So he might as well be transparent about it. In this case, like putting something out there into the world when you have a platform the way that he does is actually really dangerous. Yeah. So if all that comes of this is he just like keeps those opinions to himself in the future, then, you know, okay, fine. Obviously, the hope is that he learns. And if, if his mind needs changing, then that is ultimately what happens. Like that's, I mean, you know, that's all you can really say about that. But also, you know, I, I wouldn't have hated seeing him get suspended for actual yeah. games for that. Like Agreed. it just seemed Agreed. like a pretty light punishment. So obviously a dour note to start on. And I wrote this piece before any of that had come out, uh, puts a damper on things. But if we are going to talk about Anthony Edwards as a basketball player, there are a lot of interesting and exciting things uh, about what he could mean for the Timberwolves in the here and now and looking toward the future. And I think that if you're if you're talking about upward mobility, you that's not really why you went out and got Rudy Gobert. Like in terms of what he means for your team, yes, but Gobert is what he is at this point. Like he's not morphing into a guy that you can suddenly dump the ball down to in the post and he's going to be able to get you buckets. Like his limitations are going to remain his limitations. And I honestly think that you can say the same for Cat at this point too. Cat's amazing, but I think that his weaknesses generally are going to remain his weaknesses. He is going to remain a, a really dynamic, versatile, skilled offensive big man who has some blind spots in his game, especially at the defensive end of the floor. Edwards is like the kind of unmolded ball of clay that could turn into almost anything and really shape what the Wolves become this season and for you know, the the life of Gobert's contract and whatever the this sort of contention window turns out to be in Minnesota. Like it it sort of falls on him. And I think the the strides that he made last year and the ones that he didn't quite make are what make me really excited and interested to see what he looks like this coming season. Because he came a long way at the defensive end of the floor came a long way as a shooter. Um, and I feel like he is a few tweaks away from being like a really like high volume, high efficiency type of bucket getter, you know, like mm -hmm. he, he's, he's not quite there with the efficiency and, or the volume to be honest, but I think he's close. And there are just a couple areas of his game where, you know, if, if we see him make those kinds of, they don't even have to be huge leaps, just small improvements. Um, he and the Wolves could be really, really good this coming season. Um, and I think, you know, like a lot of people clearly seem to believe in what he can do this season because I don't even, I, I don't like pay attention to the top 100 list. I just see them like come across my Twitter timeline. So I know that there were, there was at least one of them that ranked him inside the top 25, which is, ambitious and um 
Then I also heard Zach Lowe say on his podcast that he thinks that at some point in the future, he thinks Anthony Edwards can make an all-defense team, which is, I just have to point out how insane that is because it's really freaking hard to make an all-defense team. No, I know. There's only two of them, not three of them. You'd be basically one of the 10 best defenders in the league. PJ Tucker's never made an all-defense team. OG Ananobi has never made an all-defensive team. Like, I I have a hard time believing that Edwards now, is never going to be that good defensively, but... The catch there is that those guys have merited all defensive team selections in the past, but the voting for it is always shoddy because not a lot of people like properly evaluate defense. Yeah. So he could make one and not actually be one of the best 10 defenders in the league right. if it's like, you know, he's he's this 25-point-a-game scorer who's upped his defense so much, everyone's talking about it and paying attention to it, and then they give him the all-defense, but right. I could see that happening. But... To Lowe's point, I guess, in credit, I do think there's a lot of untapped defensive potential in there that has slowly, slowly come out over the course of his two years, but a lot more to come, obviously. If Anthony Edwards is anywhere close to a top 25 overall player this year, the Wolves are a contender. Like, if if Carl Anthony Towns is just what he is, and Rudy Gobert just is what he is, and Ant becomes a top 25 player this season, yeah, they're a contender. Also, the beauty of this team being together and, and Ant playing with Rudy Gobert after the, the whole last season when he said Porzingis was the better room to yeah, yeah, protect. Yeah. And I think his, ex- his exact words were, he had, Rudy Gobert, don't put no fear in my heart. Yeah. Because I had forgotten about it until I actually read your piece and I think you had linked out to it. And it's just, yeah, chef's kiss that, the, that he now is playing with Rudy Gobert. And guess what, Anthony Edwards? Rudy Gobert is going to be putting a lot of fires out for you. And putting a lot of fear in people's hearts. And that's going to help your defense. So whether he put fear into your heart or not, uh, I guess is irrelevant now. That was after a game in which the Jazz had absolutely shit kicked the Wolves too. <laughs> and Edwards had gotten nothing at the rim. And like, I, that, is, that is part of Anthony Edwards' MO is like to, he doesn't back down. He doesn't show any doubt. Uh, I did. Th- I mean, it was interesting. I and guess, no, that he, listen, no, he that's what superstar scorers are made of. That kind of mentality. Sure. And I, I mentioned in this piece and like, obviously, again, this is something that, you know, recent events and his behavior has put a real damper on this because what you would have said is he has that sort of that magnetic persona, those leadership qualities, that that it factor, you know, like the the moxie that you associate with superstars in the league. I think that is a big part of why people believe in him, apart from just what they see from him on the court, which there's a lot to believe in there. I think how he has comported himself, again, up until recently, I do think that's a big part of what has driven all this interest and belief in him. And, um, you know, I, I keep coming back to this moment last season. It was actually after that exact same game against Utah, uh, when he made those comments about Gobert, he was also talking about Towns and how he was trying to convince Towns look, you're being guarded by a power forward. Like they were having Gobert guard Vanderbilt and just like camp out at the rim. And that was sort of what was gumming up Minnesota's offense. And they weren't getting anything because Towns couldn't do anything in his matchup against Bojan Bogdanovich, basically. And he's like, you need to be dominating that matchup. You need, when you catch the ball, you got to go make quick decisions because then they're bringing the double team over and then you're just giving the ball up and we're not getting anything out of it. And I just, I, I clocked that because it said a lot to me about the dynamic on the team and, and the personalities of those two guys, I think. Like, on the one hand, you don't necessarily want 
your ostensible franchise player to need that type of coaxing or you know encouragement from a a 20 year old second year player but at the same time you know it's pretty encouraging that your 20 year old second year player has the type of moxie and mentality that like he has no hesitation about going to the franchise player and trying to (laughs) instill that confidence in him or just get him fired up you know I don't think it really worked because we saw those same limitations with Cat in the playoffs uh, in terms of like how switching defenses can really take him out of a game. I think it's maybe more of like a skill set limitation than it is a mentality limitation at this point. But I do think if you're thinking about this team long term and big picture, you're sort of thinking about Edwards as more the alpha of the team. 100%. Than Towns. Um, but he actually has to get there. Like he has to get yes. to that level as a player in order to be that guy. The best version of the Wolves to me has, you know, like Towns is sort of uh, more of a, a wingman. And I think even mentality perspective, I think there is something in Edwards, whether it is that type of like, you know, number one scorer bravado that he seems to have, the fearlessness, like whatever it is, I there is something there where he seems much more of like the, you know, going forward as the Wolves get keep getting better, if they are a contender, big games the next few years, like I trust that Anthony Edwards will be Anthony Edwards in big games more than I trust Cat will be Cat. You know, like I think there is some sort of like made for the moment thing there with with Ant that I just don't think is there with Cat necessarily. Mm-hmm. And sometimes like you can't manufacture that. Some guy like they have it or they don't. I think it's pretty evident Ant does and Cat doesn't, unfortunately. Yeah, so let's let's talk quickly cuz I know we're we're <laughs> going long here, but like what he actually needs to do to get to that level. Because to me, a lot of it comes down to first of all the in-between game which to this point just really hasn't been there at all. Like no pull-up mid-range, no floater game whatsoever. And obviously we know about the athleticism and the first step and how easily he can get himself to the rim. But because he doesn't really have that in-between game, a lot of the time I feel like he ends up banging his head against the wall. And you look at his finishing numbers and for somebody as big and strong and as athletic as he is, and for as much as we've seen him put guys on posters, the finishing numbers are not very impressive. And I think part of the reason for that is he can't really afford to be selective when he's driving the ball. If he had that in-between game, if he had the floater to fall back on, I think you you sort of make defenses think twice about just playing you in a deep drop or you know playmaking too, right? Like making those reads out to shooters and knowing where the help is coming from. Like defense doesn't really have any second thoughts about uh, you know, bringing a helper over from the strong side on the last line of defense. Like it, it, it could open up so much for him just to make like some subtle improvements in terms of the the playmaking and the in-between game uh, that it's sort of like one hand washes the other, you know, like his ability to get into the paint offers him those opportunities and his ability to do different things when he gets into the paint, whether it's scoring the ball from different parts of the floor or making passing reads when the help comes over that's just going to make it that much easier for him to finish at the rim when he decides to go all the way there. So I think that's just huge. And I think in a very interesting way, Gobert being there, even though we talked when they when this trade happened about how him and Gobert don't make such a natural pick and roll pairing and how the like him running pick and pop with Cat makes way more sense because Cat's going to drag the big out of the paint and that's going to open up those driving lanes for him. Him running pick and roll with Gobert is going to be super interesting to me because what Gobert is going to do is 
he is going to drag a big man with him on the roll. They're playing Edwards in a drop because they don't think he has a much, you know, in-between game to, to hurt them with. Then he's going to have those opportunities available to them when, when he's running the pick and roll with Gobert. He's going to have the floater available to him. He's going to maybe have the lob available to him or the weak side defender is going to come in. He's going to have a skip pass available to him. Like I'm very curious to see in that configuration, what he's able to do and whether that almost challenges him to round out those aspects of his game, because, you know, we already know what he can do running a two man game with cat, you know, that's, he's going to be great. And that's, you know, probably the best setup for the Wolves team as it stands right now, but it's also not going to challenge him to change. Right. If, and if he does change and rounds out those areas of his game, then as to what we were saying earlier, then the Wolves probably jump into that tier of teams that actually are contenders, um, which would obviously be a massive step for this particular franchise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just quickly to put some numbers on that, he shot 33% on non-rim two-pointers last year. Obviously really bad. And of the 47 players who drove to the basket at least 10 times per game, his assist to turnover ratio on drives was dead last. So those are the spots for him offensively. Um, And then defensively, I think he's already a really good on-ball defender. It's just the off-ball stuff that that he needs to clean up. Um, Which is very typical of younger players, to be honest. Like we were saying, I think with Max, like, well, Maxie's bad on-ball too, but uh, it's like the (laughs) the attentiveness stuff, right? The stuff that isn't as obvious, that's not literally right in front of you, that usually seems to be defensive kryptonite for young players. And I'd say, and especially like offensively minded players like Ant. Yes. All right. Well, fun. Another 90 minutes in the books as we inch closer to the 2022-23 season. Uh, I'd say this might be our first kind of like season preview episode given. Well, we talked about like over, over and underachieving oh, teams. I feel like true. That was, my bad. This is the yeah. second <laughs> season preview episode. Next couple of weeks, we'll be back with uh, breakout player candidates our bold predictions, some other maybe fun stuff before the actual season tips off. And then we eventually get back to uh, most likely two a week once the season actually does tip off. Until then, fan shout out for the day goes out to Amanda uh, in Toronto who interacted with us after our episode uh, centering on the Robert Sarver situation. At Amanda Lelia 8 on Twitter, I believe is how you pronounce that. And uh, anyway, yeah, I just wanted to shout her out and also shout out her profile says she's a registered nurse in Toronto. So uh, Huge shout, shout out, out Amanda and thank you for your service. Yes. Until uh, one of those future season preview episodes, Wolfond, it's been a blast as usual. As always. <laughs> that sounded sarcastic, but I didn't mean it to. <laughs> All right. For Joe Wolfond, I'm Joseph Cacharo, Pound the Rock. <laughs>